This is a Broad Pods production. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Broad Radio On The Go. This week our hosts are Serpil Chanelmas and Cal Wilson and we've got some cracking guests as well including Marie Hardy who talks to us about what it's like to have um, you know people back in the same room and performing. Her show Better Off Said is happening this weekend in Melbourne uh, and it is a spoken word art salon but it's really more than that. It's a chance for people to say what's in their heart. We also talk a little bit of politics with independent running for Bradfield in Sydney, Nicolette Buller, and she talks about the idea that a lot of places around Australia are getting a good political shake-up at the moment. And then finally, Tanya Kursik is an entrepreneur and a founder of Uganda's Little Blue Shed, which is creating opportunities for women to support their families, send their kids to school and learn new skills. It's all right here on Broad Radio On The Go. I'm Sad Pashanamish and with me is the lovely Kel Wilson. Hello, Kel. Hello. Hey, I saw you at the Melbourne Comedy Festival last mm-hmm. week. It was like having a warm hug. It was so nice. The next day I woke up, my cheeks were so sore. Oh, it's so lovely. From laughing. What was it like getting back amongst the crowd? It was amazing actually because we've done two years of Zoom gigs and it's not the comedian's natural habitat. So it was just, it's so lovely to be in a room sharing a moment with people and yeah just just the delight in being around people I hadn't met before as well you know because it's been so long it's just been the family so yeah and hearing people laugh together because humor is such a connecting thing it was it was a treat fantastic now Cal as I mentioned I did see you at the comedy festival <laughs> last week and one thing that you mentioned was your time on I'm a celebrity get me out of here And I loved how you said, like, you just resisted being on that show Mm -hmm. for such a long time. But then the pandemic hit and your words, not mine. I think you said something along the lines of, I'm a celebrity, give me me anything. anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that's exactly what it was. It was like, you know, the work had vanished and and then we'd been in lockdown for so long. And I've always turned it down in the past when they've asked. And then I was like, well, why not? If everything is terrible right now, why, why not make it a little bit worse? And then I loved it. I had a great time. And I made all of these new friends, which was something I wasn't expecting to come away with. And we were, we were talking before about how weird it is as adults. It's not as easy as when you're a kid to make new friends. Like you can't sort of just go up to someone and go, do you want to play? Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in your show was, you know, you had to do some yucky things like eating cockroaches. But in between that, you, you found you had a win. You had this strong friendship that you yeah. made with, the bubbly and lovely Poe, which, you know, we've all come to love and know her through the early days of MasterChef. Of course, she's done a whole heap of things since then. And you've struck up this friendship, which is, you know, it's not a usual thing to do, don't you think, in adulthood? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a lot harder as an adult to make friends. And I feel so fortunate that we did have that time in the so-called juggle together to make friends and Poe and I just hit it off and I stayed with her in Adelaide over the Fringe Festival. It was so nice to be inside wearing normal clothes on furniture because up to that point we'd only hung out, hung out 
on a log in the, in the bush. Like it was so, it was it was lovely to reestablish that. And really, thinking about it, like the friends that I've made up until that point as an adult have been other parents because because your kids do the same thing together and you get to know the other parents. But we had this experience where uh, we met this couple from one of the sports teams that my son plays for, got on like a house on fire, really hit it off. And then about a year into the friendship, discovered they were really racist. And so... Uh, hang on, hang on. Backtrack, backtrack. So you'd known these people for a year. So long. And they came out of the closet as racist. Well, I think it was because we were on Facebook with them and there was just a little bit of espousing of um, Corey Bernardi. And then there was that, that um, the speech in... Melbourne where the neo-Nazis spoke and there was like a post about how great they were sort of thing and we were like oh we just have to not be friends anymore because you you assume that people that you hang out with and like will have the same kind of value system as you but then we were like oh we have to so how do you test that it's it's an interesting thing that you say because you know when you're younger you you test a lot of friendships right mm. but you know particularly uh, in your early 20s you're sort of I don't know, you hang out with someone like in really through intense periods and then suddenly you realise, well, actually we've got no nothing in common mm. anymore and you sort of find someone else in your life. But in adulthood, you tend to be a bit more discerning. So... Mm. How do you na- how do you navigate that? What do, do you have like a checklist of things that you go through for think, what qualifies as I a friend? I feel like we should now, like having <laughs> having been burned by that, we should. I guess I guess you find it pretty quickly. Even talking about COVID, like you find out pretty quickly if like someone's an anti-vaxxer, and I'm quite pro-vaccines. Like that would probably prevent our friendship from going further. But like I was saying, I've mostly met people through my son because our kids do the same things together how have you made friends as an adult well it's interesting um I moved here as an adult from Perth uh, so here being Melbourne and I actually found it difficult to make friends because I, I find that you you're a little bit more adventurous when you're in your 20s and you're sort of in your 30s it's a bit like I'm not sure. And also people's dance cards are full. So they've already yeah. got their circle of friends. So trying to wedge yourself into that friendship group. So I ended up doing some crazy things like I'd go to this store that I really loved to buy clothes and uh, the the owner of the store was just lovely. And we just struck up these conversations that were really interesting. So I'd just, you know, sidle up to her, how you doing, you know. And, and we became really good friends. And, you know, I ended up flying to Tokyo with her for her milestone birthday, which oh, I'd wow. never done with friends I'd had for, yep. you know, a bajillion years. And we're still friends to this day. And I, I think it's just because we we made each other laugh. We sort of, um, you know, had common values, as mm-hmm. you said. I have not discovered that she's a racist, thank goodness. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> tick, tick, tick. Uh, and we just also enjoy being in each other's company where, you know, uh, if the person can come to your house and lie on your couch and take off their shoes mm-hmm. and treat it as if they're home, their own home you know that you're onto a winner with that friendship yes yeah yeah, yeah. totally yeah uh, yesterday I had a friend come around for brunch and it was so nice that she was comfortable enough in our house rather than like meeting in a cafe and stuff so we could just like I figured that we I had this thought yesterday actually that I know that we are really good friends because I answered the door in my Ugg boots like I didn't need to change my footwear to look like they were respectable. I was like, oh, Kelly knows me well enough to see my Ugg boots. Like it was just a nice little measurement of, oh yeah, we're all comfortable here. Absolutely. Have we got a question, uh, Cal, here? The person says, uh, this is from Karen Crombie. Um, she says, hi, Cal, love seeing you a few times at the Moth in Melbourne. My question, what about when you make friends with parents and then the kids fall out? That's tricky too. That's really tricky too. I I haven't had that situation, but I've got friends that are in that situation where the two daughters do not get on, but the mums love each other. And that's a tricky one as well. I think they've kind of grown out of it. Like as the kids have got older, I mean, that's not a strategy, but, but yeah, it's definitely tricky because... You kind of have to, well, if, you know, if, if Daisy doesn't want to hang out with Amelia, then you just have to kind of accept that, I think. I think so too. You can just always say, like, we're, we're having mummy time and don't keep, take the kids yeah, along. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think, I mean. Meet in a bar. That's what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, hey, we should probably introduce our next guest, the wonderful Marik Hardy. Now, Marik is many, many things. She is a book and screenwriter. You'll be familiar with shows that, she, that she's penned, like ABC TV's Laid or episodes of Pack to the Rafters. She's also the former artistic director of the Melbourne Writers Festival. Marik is also a broadcaster. In fact, she was one of my Triple J colleagues from many, many moons ago. We probably had a bit more collagen back in our skin then. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll know her probably as the, the co-creator of the international literary uh, phenomenon, Women of Letters. And now she's created Better Off Said, Eulogies for the Living and Dead. It's an afternoon of words, thoughts and reflections for the living and dead. Basically, each month, a group of guests are invited. Three guests are invited to speak to the phrase, I wish I had said, and then one special guest delivers our living eulogy to someone or something still of this earth. And that on the 1st of May, that's next weekend. Hello, Marie. Hi, adult friends. How are you? <laughs> Good. Good. Hey, have you made an adult friend? Oh, yeah, I make adult friends a lot. I love making new friends. I'm real. I'm a new friend junkie. It's great. I fall in love. I'm very romantic, so I fall in love fast, and that includes friendship love as well. So you get really enamored of people. Although my, you know how New Year's Eve you make, well, usually it's uh, you make a resolution. But this year and our New Year's Eve, we decided to pick a word or a phrase to commit to because I'd had other friends say in other years they'd pick the word brave for a year or something. But this year I picked an intention to commit to my chosen family. So to make sure that I kept fostering and building the relationships of people who were not my blood family, who I'm not close to, but my chosen family, because they are my integral foundational relationships, just to make sure that I looked out for them. And it wasn't just getting enamored with all the new people, which I do very easily, but really making sure I embed those relationships that are familiar in here. They are the familiar, but uh, not blood family. So there you go. I've started out, Ernest. (laughs) <laughs> That's where I always go. Sorry. <laughs> I, I love that, Marie. It's so much better than making those, you know, resolutions that last all of two weeks. I'm going to eat less or I'm going to exercise more. It's such a meaningful resolution. I love it. Yeah, now, and I, we always um, write a letter to the year prior and set it on fire at midnight as well. So you can do, I'm a fan of the symbolism, like letting some, letting some shit go. So you write a letter, you're like, thank you year, thank you for the grief, thank you for meeting that person and that thing that didn't work. And then like putting a match to it at midnight and setting it on fire and that kind of symbolism I think is important. Hey, let's talk about better off said. Um, one of the things that, the, the the pandemic has reminded us is you know we're all gonna die right but it's also reminded us that it's it's been a time of reflection we've a lot of us have sat back re-examined our lives to go you know what is what is life all about and and so I guess in terms of uh doing that do do you think we should all be embracing that idea of speaking our minds or that that idea of living eulogies well, I mean, Emily Zoe Baker, who is my co-curator and I, we created this uh, event in 2019, November 2019. There she is, beautiful Emily, uh, in the very um, ambitious style of live events there that we thought were going to go on forever. So it was a monthly event. We started in November 2019. We did three shows. March 2020, we stopped doing shows for obvious reasons. In 2021, we like, we're back. Here we come, monthly events. And uh, we did one show. And so it feels like a real genuine privilege to now we've done where this is this Sunday, May 1st show that's upcoming. It's going to be our third show in three months. And, you know, I'm curating the June show currently and the July show. So, and Cal, as you would know from Comedy Festival, it, like I just do not take being back in the Alive event space for granted. I feel so lucky and so excited that we're here again every time I'm in a room with people who are laughing together or feeling something together and watching our beautiful performers take the stages that were denied to them for so long without any support. I just think, look at us, we're here. I want to kind of drink this moment up, which does speak to we're all going to die, which we should be drinking up all these moments at every point in our lives going, you know, everything is finite, nothing is certain. So how amazing that we're on a Zoom together talking and you've got amazing pattern clothes on. And like, I just think 
that was the point of the show that we started in 2019. It's like, how do you say things before they're too late? How do you tell people you love them? Because we, we would all have had an experience where someone or something was taken from our lives mm-hmm. before we were ready. And we just think, gosh, I wish that they knew that I was sorry or I was grateful or that I loved them. So that was really the key behind this show is putting that space there for readers to have that catharsis, to say things before they're too late which doesn't mean you always should say everything because sometimes that can really hurt people. It's not like, like, oh, to hell with it. You're going to hear my truth now. I I don't think that's the intention. And I've had to close, find some closure with some people that doesn't always involve me connecting with them. I think you can write these things down and it doesn't always have to go to the person. They don't have to always hold your hurt or pain. But really that was the intention. And look, it was never our intention when we created the show to have people kind of unzip their chests on our stages. But the the shows that we've done, it's really used as a place of catharsis. And we're really conscious and grateful that our readers are so emotionally honest, that people in the room are so respectful and beautiful, and that it does feel like a safe place for everyone to kind of talk these things through. I, I love that, that idea of just saying what you need to say before it's too late. And like, I immediately had a couple of things that I was like, oh, I can, I could absolutely talk about that in in your format because, yeah, it, it just speaks to that feeling of connection and then the regret that you feel if you don't say the thing. Like, has there been a really any really unexpected kind of stories of regret that are kind of out of the box, or are they all just fascinating and and you don't know where they've come from, sort of thing? Do you mean in the show? In the show, yeah, or in my life. Uh, In the show, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we record the shows uh, except if an artist says that they don't want something recording and someone once spoke at a show and I'm not going to make it public because they chose not to record, but they chose to disclose that they had suffered abuse as a child and it was the first time they ever felt they wanted to speak it, they wanted to air it in this space. And there was this beautiful moment where they said to the crowd, please don't tell anyone. And I'm like, what an amazing sense of trust to be in a room of 200 people and share this thing as a public figure and then trust that we would all keep it. And I think that sense of that sense of trust is, is with good reason. I think everyone did hold it that day. And that was a revelation that I did not clearly expect. And we have a duty of care for those people. I've made sure I check in on them consistently and that it felt okay for them to share it and disclose it in that space. But when we give our readers the brief, so the premise of the show is four readers do the words I wish I'd said. That's the brief we give them. And in this upcoming show, as you said, it's Denise Scott, Professor Alan Duffy, Swoon, Georgia Mack, who is the front woman from Camp Cope and Alice Poole. And then we have a break and then we ask someone to deliver the living eulogy. And the amazing Tony Birch is going to deliver the living eulogy at this show. And then we have a musical act. In this case, it's Stav. So... It's really interesting. The Living Eulogy has been taken to some really different places. Uh, Lou Bennett at our first show eulogised the Jabberung birthing tree. Um, Jan Fran at our second show eulogised, perhaps slightly prematurely, Scott Morrison's career, although (laughs) fingers crossed, coming up. Uh, And we had uh, Clementine Ford did uh, our last show and eulogised a house that she moved out of after being in lockdown in it for so long and just all the pain and grief but beauty and growing that her and her son did in that space and it was the first space she was in after her after she separated from her son's father so it was just so that's the brief we just say eulogize someone or something and they're the kind of things that people take in that space so i kind of love that it's broad enough that people can be really emotionally truthful they can choose something symbolic, something important to them, something political. So you never quite know what you're going to get in a show and that's the that's the joy of it and being in the room. And it sounds like the audience uh, recognise that they're being given a gift by the person speaking, like that, that there is this, because people's stories are fantastic and even if it feels like a tiny story, it still resonates with everyone. And you would know, Cal, from doing Women of Letters as well. Like we really, I, I genuinely respect that space. Like I, and I, I know I'm going to die. So you go, what can I put into the world that is meaningful, that is not self-serving? I'm not on the stage at Better Offset. I wasn't on the stage at Women of Letters. I do front of house. I curate these shows. I have a very strong intention, and, and so does Emily, to create a space where 
you know, someone gets up on stage and people in the audience go, well, I know that person. That's a famous person. That's a famous person from the telly. And then that famous person talks about, you know, the death of a parent. And people in the audience go, well, that's how I felt when my parent died. And there's a moment of beautiful empathy and connection and all of us understanding that we are living this shared human experience, shared grief, shared pain, shared joy, shared connection until we're not anymore. And so there is a really strong intention for all of us in that room to understand that, you know, for want of a better phrase, we are in this together and that when you can hold that space for someone and understand their experience then it's a it's a richer way to be alive hey marik uh edja Chalishkin has just written in and she said better off said is just the best marik is so good at curating these types of events what a melbourne treasure she is there you go. Oh, that's so kind. That made me feel a little bit teary. Sorry. And words of affirmation is my love language. So, like, straight in, straight into the chest, that one. Amazing. Fantastic. Thank you. Hey, now, the, the, the word eulogy originates from the Greek word eulogia, which means true words of praise. Eulogies, of course, by their, their very nature, are supposed to be about, you know, keeping a person's legacy alive, sharing stories and memories and celebrating the life of a deceased one. So would you say the the living eulogy has that sort of same sentiment behind it? I think so, although... I mean, specifically, we we ask the living eulogist to eulogise someone or something that is still with us. And again, another Kate Kennedy, who is a wonderful writer and a real hero of mine, eulogised at a show. It was it was the one show we did in 2021, and she eulogised singing in groups because at that stage, no one was allowed to sing together. No one was allowed to be in the room and sing together. And it was this beautiful. I mean, that's something that isn't dead, and it's not a person, but it was that sense of just eulogizing of sitting and recognizing something and paying tribute to it specifically before it's too late is our intention whereas often eulogies are used to like you said commemorate celebrate something that is no longer with us but what does it look like if you say those things now and we take a moment to say oh my goodness that thing or that person is still here and the wonderful Luke McGregor did uh, did our show a couple of months ago and he wasn't doing the living eulogy. He did the words I wish I'd said, but it, he said it's the words I wish I'd said to my dad. And he said, he's still alive. I just don't say these things very often and this is probably what I'd want to say at his eulogy, but I hope I get the bravery to say it to him in real life. And so any opportunity that gives us all the chance to reflect on that, to think of the people, Cal, like you said, straight away you were like, oh, I know a couple of things that I would talk mm. about. I lost a, a beautiful friend in 2020 uh, suddenly during the pandemic and had to watch his funeral on Zoom and do all those things that so many of us have had to do. And it did give me a big reset to say, who do I need to clear things with in my life? You know, if, if someone was looking at my coffin or if I'm looking at someone else's coffin, who are some people that I just want to get some I'm sorry and thank you and goodbyes mm. with? And I wrote two letters after that funeral that felt like I needed to close something from my heart and I, I think we should all think about that. Think about, I'm sure anyone listening to this knows straight away at least one person going, oh, I should say sorry or thank you or I forgive you or whatever it is. I say those are the things that you should say because you never know when you're going to lose that person and what a sad thing to, to not know or never say. And it's so true, um, Marik, because, you know, one of the things that a palliative care nurse found was that she she actually collected what the 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 um, five regrets, the top five regrets people had were when they were about to pass away. And on top of the list, number three was, I wish I'd had to, the, the courage to, to express myself. So, you know, you're giving people an opportunity to do something that won't become their, their top five regret when, you know, they're about to shuffle off this mortal coil. So, um it's a great thing that you're, you've birthed into the world and, and we, we thank you for it. It's been really great to, to chat to you. Um, now, if you're in Melbourne, you can head along to a session of Better Off Said next weekend. That's Sunday, the, the 1st of May. It kicks off at 5 o'clock at the Brunswick Ballroom on Sydney Road. All the details are on betteroffsaid.com.au. Now, next up, we'll be meeting independent candidate Nicolette Buller, who's in the thick of an election campaign. More Broad Radio after this. Come on, come on, come on. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Broad Radio. I'm Sarah and Mission. With me is Cal Wilson. Now, joining us from Sydney right now is Nicolette Buller. She is an independent candidate for Bradfield, a safe seat, a safe liberal seat, I should say, in North Sydney. Now, Nicolette has lived in the Bradfield electorate for 41 of her 51 years. She was educated there. She worked there. She's raising her family there. Nicolette's been endorsed by the, the Voices of Bradfield and is running a campaign focused on climate action, responsible forward thinking, economic decisions, restoring integrity in politics and looking after each other because that's what Australians do. Hello, Nicolette. Hello, Sue. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you for joining Cal and I. Now, I want to kick off with, you know, in the in the words of our former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, <laughs> there's never been a more exciting time to be alive, especially if you're a independent candidate. Now, if there seems to be a real disillusionment with the, the old model of politics. Our two major parties, the support for our two major parties are at a, an all-time low. And with that, what we've seen is this real large female push to, to shake things up. And, and you've joined that group of, you know, females who are trying to shake things up. Why did you throw your hat in the, the political ring, especially when you're, you know, in, in a safe liberal seat? Okay, just as a point of clarity, in a vibrant democracy, there is no such thing as a safe liberal label or anything seat so that's the exciting part of it um why did i throw my hat in the ring it's a it's a really good question i don't know how much time you have but i can say that in my with my background in uh, climate policy clean energy and in sustainability i had spent much of my career working in public policy also in and around canberra too such as at the climate institute the australian conservation foundation and, and for organisations that were really pushing for better representation of environmental and social values into policy making at a federal level, we weren't getting it. And I have to say that once we had a Kevin Rudd was our Prime Minister, I really thought after the apology to our first Australians that we would get action on climate. And we didn't. And I have to be quite honest, I think there was a part of me that died that day when um, when the Labor government of the day didn't commit enough to um, an international agreement on climate. And I slinked away and um, started a career in in the financial markets because I didn't have to be um, subject to the whims of what a marginal electorate may or may not want for a particular election. You could get some really good decisions without ideology made. And so the big question is, what? why did I start running? Well, I was part of the great resignation. I had actually sort of hung up after a decade in finance just to take a pause and to catch up on some reading and and, and do some stretching, if you like. Uh, my daughter's doing her final year at year 12 this year as well. And it was a combination of a few things, particularly meeting the current member of my member of parliament in the street. And, and to his credit, he's never he's never really pretended to care about climate change and on this occasion it was no different and i just went no wonder i've disengaged from politics because the parties just aren't getting done 
They're really important. And of course, they're hard sometimes, but there's some really obvious things that we need done, like bold, urgent, meaningful action on climate, and particularly getting a federal IBAC or ICAC, an independent anti-corruption commission in at a federal level. So this is sort of part of why I decided to run. There are many other reasons, like my 20-year-old voting for the first time. But I just want an Australian parliament full of leaders, or at least a few leaders that I'm immensely proud of, that know where they're taking our nation. And they're not scared of a genuine contest of ideas, that they don't have to drip everything in, in ideology, but can actually tell us where we're going and why, and take everybody along with us. So that's some of the reasons why I've decided to throw my hat in the ring and give the people of Bradfield a choice, something different. Do you think climate is going to be a real sticking point in this election? I mean, we just had the you know COP26 and we, we didn't look so good on the international stage. Australia, it was a little bit embarrassing what Australia had to offer on on the international stage. And just recently with the, the budget, there wasn't a lot of money thrown for uh, climate action. Do you think Australians have taken note of that and will that be a sticking point this election? So I can tell you what I've heard on, in the hustings or on the stump around um, my upper North, North Sydney electorate of Bradfield and that is that, yeah, people actually are saying enough's enough. Um, they're really frustrated that the Liberal Party in particular, which is quite diverse, but it just seems to have been held hostage to the interests of, of Barnaby Joyce and the National Party. Um, and there's just been no action on it. So I'm hearing particularly from the seniors in our electorate that they want to be able to hand the planet on to their kids and their grandkids in a way that is at least not as, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's getting better. It's starting to heal the planet. And and that's ringing out loud and clear. There's also a really strong, um, probably more a male group in the sort of the 40s to 60s that are just frustrated that we haven't pivoted our economy onto 21st century solutions such as in clean energy and things like electric vehicles, that we're still using taxpayers' money to subsidise fossil fuels and, and sort of industries of the past, it's not putting us in a great position to be and remain internationally competitive with other countries around the world that have all taken these 2050 and indeed 2030 and 2035 commitments on climate. So, yeah, on the basis of doing the right thing for our kids' futures um, and also about the economy and jobs, absolutely climate is going to be one of the three or top four issues, particularly in my electorate for this election. So you, you mentioned just before you've got a 20-year-old who's voting for the first time. Have they said uh, what is important to them? I'm assuming they're going to um, vote for their mum. Uh, but are they? I... <laughs> uh, what are they particularly concerned about? Yeah, so um, my son, he's, he's particularly concerned about reconciliation with our first Australians. Uh, he did Aboriginal studies um, for his um, at high school and he's moved in to become a, a professional football coach and um, for everybody around Australia that's around the ball the soccer um, and so it's interesting but he just sees um, he finds it really difficult to look forward as a nation if we haven't really had some honest conversations about from where we've come and um, I'm actually quite proud about the the lens as a you know relatively privileged white male um, and, and affluent as well that he's able to put that lens on and look around and see the prism through which he sees things. And um, I think having done his Aboriginal studies and more recently just travelled, he realises the absolute importance about truth-telling, storytelling, listening. And um, I think uh, he would sincerely love policies that respect um, and recognise First Australians um, probably in our constitution, if that's what they want, and also to include First Australians much more in public policy making and representation in Australian Parliament. So that's the thing that matters to him. 
Nicolette, uh, speaking of young people, a, a really interesting thing happened in Victoria this week. So one of our former Liberal premiers, Ted uh, Bailu, his son Rob came out this week and publicly rejected the, the Liberal Party and uh, he threw his support behind Manique Ryan, who's actually the independent candidate attempting to unseat uh, Federal Treasurer Josh uh, Frydenberg. So in he wrote an opinion piece, uh, Rob did, and in it he he said um, that good people would take action on climate change, they would protect the rights of LGBT people, they'd support an anti-corruption commission. So do you think young people like Rob and your son are going to make a significant impact on the next election result? What are you hearing from them? What do they want for their future? That's a really good question and I and I wish I had a, a more helpful answer except that there is definitely which is really exciting. And maybe because I have a son in that age group, but I'm hearing for the first time in a long time that young people are re-engaging on politics, which is absolutely fantastic because frankly, they probably should have 2.5 times the vote for somebody possibly later on in life because they're gonna to have to spend longer living on the planet than, than those who've already had a great turn. Um, I think they will deep though about some of the capture that we have um, Clive Palmer's United Australia Party is spending literally tens of millions of dollars on social media targeting that first-time voter age group in particular. And I can say it's having an impact, um, particularly in my electorate. So um, it's not uh, clean and cut in terms of whether that group will make a difference, but in if only at least that group is starting to re-engage, ask questions and have a look, you know, are the major parties getting it done? Uh, you know, do we have housing affordability? Why do I start my career and I have hex debts that are up to my eyeballs? Um, th there are many serious issues, particularly climate change, that we're just pushing onto the next generation. And I can understand why they're going to be re-engaging and saying, yeah, that's not okay anymore. So in that respect, um, it's really positive. Just very quickly, uh, Nick, since Federation, fewer than 50 independent candidates have been elected to the lower house. Less than a dozen have sat in the Senate. If politics is about electing the people that, um, that are right for us, backing the right policies to improve our lives, what do independents have to offer the average Australian? Something different. Because <laughs> if you if you vote the status quo, you're going to get the status quo. Yeah, you're going to get the same. So um, what, look, and I haven't really looked over the fence very much at other independents, to be honest, because it's head down and, and working hard here to, to gain um, traction and, and, and um, meeting people here in, in Bradfield. But certainly um, I'm seeing a whole lot of very experienced people, uh, particularly when I say people are on and the high profile independents are men and women, but these women are, um, ex they've got real world experience. They're not career politicians. And I just came off a Zoom with um, Monique Ryan and, and Despie O'Connor, uh, both from Victoria. And we, we got to imagine what the future might be. And with my experience in economy and uh, climate change and accountability and Monique's in, in public health and, um, and, and DESPIs, for example, in local government and education and sustainability, suddenly I realised, wow, imagine if we had all of these people with real world experience, for, you know, real stories um, and connected with their communities in the parliament, just how much more diverse and rich policymaking would be. Uh, and I think particularly women have, it's, it's a, it's a generalisation, but have a different style uh, to to engaging, to listening, collaborating. They're more likely to want to find common ground and work hard on the policy aspects rather than just the ideology around things. So I think I think independence, particularly, I talk for myself. Um, I know I'm a great choice, <laughs> and um, and I think a lot of people are really excited about having the opportunity, at least, to have something different because what's happening at the moment is is both parties are not getting the job done. Thank you for your time, Nicolette. <laughs> you are, thanks so much for having me. It's such a, and I love listening to um, Marika before. She's just wonderful. Um, thank you so much for Broad Radio.
Thank you. That's uh, independent candidate for Bradfield, Nicolette Buller. Coming up, we'll find out what Little Blue Shed is all about. Broad Radio, talking inspo we love, info we need and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday 9am Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2am existential crisis, we've got you covered. Broad Radio, here for more. Yes, you are on Broad Radio. I'm Sarah Chanel Mish with Cal Wilson. Now, Cal, I did say you headed off to the comedy festival. Mm -hmm. I came to see you at the comedy festival, but... You actually have also done something super, super exciting other than going back on stage and being amongst people. You went to the BAFTAs. I went to the BAFTAs. It was very exciting. I'm not going to say anything more. Imagine that did that, just left it like just showing off I went to the BAFTAs. Uh, yeah, so uh, Rebel Wilson was hosting the BAFTAs in the UK and I wrote some jokes for her. And then kind of last minute she went, do you want to come and be here for the BAFTAs like we can do some more sort of workshopping and stuff. So I got to be backstage at the BAFTAs and like I love being backstage. Like I love seeing the the gaffer tape and the foam and the like just the backstage stuff that's not the glamour out front. The I mean, vibe. Yeah. Just yeah. seeing and just seeing how much work goes into um an awards ceremony like there just seemed like hundreds of floor managers running around with their little headsets on like wrangling people wrangling the presenters wrangling the BAFTA awards all that all that sort of stuff that that you don't see from out the front you just see the polished end result but I love seeing all the nuts and bolts backstage because usually you see the the one person like you said Mm. that that polished one person wearing a designer outfit but there's a whole machine that goes on behind it totally so there's there's um you know a team of writers for any award show or any big event there's there's a team of writers usually and then there's all of the there's the person the stylist there's the the camera people there's the I don't know what you call this role, but the one that the person that goes around and puts like sticks with the photos of famous people on the seats so that when you do the rehearsal, you can see where everybody is sitting because you might want to refer to Lady Gaga. So she's in that seat there. Like all of the, the stuff. Look, we got to watch um, Dame Shirley Bassey rehearse the day before in the auditorium. And Amazing. that was huge. Like, and I absolutely love that I got to see her in her plain clothes with an orchestra talking through what was going to happen and then belting out Dimes of Forever as if she was 50 years younger than she is. Like I, I, it's, I just love the backstage privilege of, of seeing what it's like, like the back side of an embroidery, like the picture is beautiful, but on the other side, I love seeing all the threads and the work that's gone into it. And how long ago were you there? A month ago. About a month ago. And you you said you wrote jokes for Rebel Wilson. Mm-hmm. I know having worked with uh, comedians before, I worked with a couple of comedians who would write jokes for Rove Live, if if people remember that show. And they would get so excited if their joke made it on air. And they actually had a scorecard. They had this little <laughs> book they, where they were like, yep, yep, five jokes this, this tonight. Yep. Does that happen to you? Do you get really excited when you see someone else actually delivering one of yeah, your jokes coming totally, out of their mouth? Totally. So I I have a thing with my friends at the comedy festival where I love going to watch a friend's show and then giving them lines, like going, oh, you could add another joke to that little bit that you're talking about. But for me, backstage at the BAFTAs, standing about a metre away from RuPaul and hearing him laugh at a joke that I had written, I was like, oh, this is just the best moment. It was such a... Like in a series of highlights, that was a big highlight. And is it weird when like a famous person like Rebel is delivering lines that you've you've written and hearing your words coming out of someone's mouth? Yeah, it's kind of it's, it's kind of interesting too because like Rebel has a really distinct persona and personality, and it's really interesting writing for someone else who has a different sort of voice than you do. So there are things that I would write for her that would not have worked coming from me, but it's it is a yeah, it's a great feeling to 
give her a line that she feels is quite rebel and then to hear the audience respond to that. It's, yeah, it's, what a treat. And, and how do you um, workshop that, Cal? Because I, I know like I've written for um, radio presenters mm-hmm. uh, previously and over time you get to learn their speech patterns and their mannerisms or the way they use some quirky words that you never would yourself. But when you're working with someone in like short bursts of time, how do you nail that? Oh, you just throw everything at her. Like I just give her pages of things and and maybe like three would stick um and then there's also the thing of like what you write down on the page might be really funny read but out loud doesn't work so there might be something that written down doesn't sound like it's going to get much but when like you say it out loud you discover it's really funny it's in the delivery or the the um the way in which it's yeah the way in which it's said so it's it's like a it's like alchemy like sort of pouring things together and finding out what's going to ignite I guess. I love the creative process and thank you for giving us a little bit of an insight into the the magic of the backstage. Um, We should introduce our next guest and find out what the Little Blue Shed is all about. So we are about to meet our guest Tanya Kursik after this. Joining us right now is Tanya Kursik. She's the founder of Little Blue Shed, a collective of women in Uganda who create pieces, one-off pieces, using recycled and or repurposed local materials. Now, it actually gives the, the women an opportunity to grow their entrepreneurship skills and their leadership skills. But let's get to know more about Little Blue Shed and Tanya and how this all came about. Hello, Tanya. Good morning. Good morning. Now tell us a little bit about your story. I understand you visited Uganda in 2010 and then and then yes. something happened. You you left your corporate job, your 9 to 5. You got yourself a one-way yes. ticket and you were out of here. Why? Yeah. So it started actually a little bit before that in 2007. I went over to visit my sponsor kid in Kenya. And I had a corporate job at the time and um, he asked me to come over and I love traveling. So each year I'd book four to six weeks somewhere. And so I checked with my boss. I booked my holiday um, for six weeks to Kenya to meet my sponsor child. And when I got to Kenya, although I had traveled to other, I guess, developing countries, nothing struck me as the level of poverty that I saw in Kenya. And I just remember being in a vehicle And next to me was a man kind of pulling this cart and I was in the car looking out the window and his feet were bleeding. And I just kind of, that image stuck in my head and I felt like, oh my goodness, how come, you know, he gets to have that life and I get to have this life. And it was just a moment in time where I had this massive realisation about how blessed we are. And um, that two-month trip in 2007 led to me coming back and really having a stirring in my spirit about what's important. So I really had to question, um, you know, is working at a corporate job what I want to do for the rest of my life? Um, Is there something I can use my skills and talents for that would help others in the world? So I went off and did the TESOL uh, uh, teaching English as a second language, and I thought, okay, this is the plan. I'm going to go back and um, rent out a little building and put a teach kids in there for free. So for the next year or two, I saved money and then I quit my job. And then in 2010, I got the one-way ticket over to teach kids. But actually what happened, I started the Blue Shed Project, which indirectly helps the kids because the mothers can then pay for their school fees. So that's how um, it ignited my flame to kind of step out of the norm and do something very different. I spent the first year there um, and that's where I set up the Little Blue Shed. That, that's quite brave because what you're doing is you're leaving the – it's a bit like, you know, flying out of a plane without a parachute. You're leaving the comfort of your home. You're going into a culture um, where you don't necessarily know the, the language or the customs uh, or what happens in that country. And, I, you know, I've seen um, this happen through people's own migrant experiences. My, my own parents have been through this. What was that experience like for you? I mean, it's it's nice to have these idealistic, you know, notions to save the world and make a better place. But what was that journey like for you? 
Look, I think the first time was two months and then the second time was one year in 2010. And then in 2015, I decided to go and live there full time. So it came in stages. And I think for that big transition, you need to be prepared emotionally and spiritually. Um, so I felt that it was a lead up from 2007 to 2015. It is, I was living in the village and collecting water from the borehole and, you know, um, getting the wood for the fire and living with the community. That was my first three years there to understand what is it in the community that people are needing and how can I apply my gifts and talents to be able to help. Um, so the first three years were pretty tough, um, but it's just... I mean, you know, I always loved putting a backpack on and traveling all the way through Europe for a year just with my backpack. So I think it's also a personality thing. Um, and what was the reception that you got from the, the people that you were living with and, and working with? Were they uh, suspicious of you for a start or did they embrace you with open arms? Yeah, look, I think there has to be trust because, you know, there has been a lot done to Africa in terms of, you know, um, exploit, exploiting and things like that. So I just basically became a part of the community and living with them where I sat on the floor with the women and collected the firewood and the water built that trust. Um, so I can't say how everybody feels, but they often tell me that I'm a blessing to them and um, they're so happy that I'm here. And I don't really, I try not to interfere culturally. And that's a part of what the Little Blue Shed does. We just set the platform and then allow other women to express their talents and their gifts that they've probably had bottled up for years and years. So this is a platform also that we do counselling. There's a lot of women that have been through trauma. There's a lot of polygamy. So being married to um, having two or three other wives in the home. Um, so it's just a safe place to learn and create and ultimately get skills for women that haven't had the chance and make an income so they are financially equipped to be able to look after their families, buy medicine, pay school fees and just be empowered like we are here in Australia. Tell me, what sort of skills are the women involved in the Little Blue Shed learning and, and um, how is that translating into an income to support themselves or their families? Yeah, so what I like to do is give a choice because I don't think everybody likes just tailoring or, you know, jewellery or shoemaking. So what I usually do in the training is I do five um, trainings. So it can be baking, it can be shoemaking, it can be tailoring, it can be jewellery making. And then once they've completed that, that five skills, I leave it up to the women and the girls to decide which one best fits them. Um, we make, we try and source all our materials from local sources to keep um, the resources within Africa, in within Uganda. Um, and we make a lot of our necklaces, if you jump online, you'll see, are made from repurposed calendar paper. So the idea is, you know, we, we care about people and we also care about the planet. Um, so it helps them because once they've passed the training period and they've decided in which product range they want to fit in, then they get employed and then they start making the items like the necklaces, the shoes. Um, we're going to move into fashion items such as dresses and skirts that will have a bit of an African and contemporary twist to it. So um, we're expanding and, um, yeah, and learning as we go. And what impact does it have? Like you talk about empowering women and working with women. What impact does that have on the wider community? Um, well, on the wider community, it has um, kids going to school is a big plus because we have a lot of youth that can't or children that can't go to school because there's no school fees. So you'll probably often hear, can you donate here for school fees? And and so I kind of think, let's take the power back and pay school fees within the community. And so that has an impact because there's not kids that are unemployed that then turn to alcoholism or theft to, to, to survive. So it's just, um, there's a second part of the program, which is now going to be the Little Blue Shed for women and something along the lines of the men's shed, which now currently make my Little Blue Shed merchandise stands, where the men will be actively participant in carpentry skills. So looking at the wider community, getting 
men and women and youth involved so it can be a more vibrant and sustainable community and empowered that they can pay their own school fees that they don't have to keep asking westerners for um you know and donations can go at any time we saw through covid a lot of people got cut off from work that meant that any support that was going overseas um didn't get there so it can end any time and i've seen that happen on a number of occasions so paint us a picture of, you know, how many women are involved? Do they, do they have a say in what happens in Little Blue Shed? Who's, yeah. who's the market? How big is the market? Where do these products end up? Okay, so basically COVID put a big stop on our work for the past two years and I've come back to revitalise. Um, up until now, there's probably been 100 to 150 women that are impacted as I was selling in markets and festivals. And I did it as a volunteer basis in the beginning, but now it's turned into, you know, people love the product. So now I'm gonna be marketing it and having an online shop and employing more people. So I think this visit to Australia has really ramped things up, Um, but I have women leaders and I deal with women leaders. So I guess you could call me a bit of a visionary setup person. And then I place local ladies that I know have the skill set and the desire to then work with the women groups, but I'm actively involved in work as well. So, um, Tanya, I'm wearing a, a, an African dress today, actually. So, uh, this, yes, this, this, this was actually made in a, I'm told, a little Nigerian village. Uh, I bought it from an okay. Afri- African Australian designer. Is mm-hmm. is that one way Westerners can support people in Africa yeah. by buying product that is actually sourced from Africa? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of the times when I'm selling at different venues or I go and talk to women's groups, they always ask, how can we help? And, you know, as much as a donation is very nice, it's it's not sustainable, as I was saying before. So using those skills and then having ladies go to, or men, because, you know, you can buy that special gift for your wife or your daughter, um, come to the website and buy. So, One of the things that when I was doing my, you know, vision and the structure of Little Blue Shed is that we would love people to love the products and then find out the story Um, because I don't want it to be a woe is me, you know, poor Africa type of buy. Um, So that's how we've kind of structured it. So we're coming up with product development and product ideas that are going to be useful to Western women and as well as knowing where it comes from. Um, that's kind of the vision and the mission for the Little Blue Shed. So, yes, going online and buying products when those special days come up, like Mother's Day, which is just around the corner, or a special birthday, um, you know, jumping online for not-for-profit organisations or sustainable and ethical fashion organisations would definitely be the way to sustain and help. And can you tell us a little bit about the Big Sister, Little Sister program that you've got? Yeah, okay. So this was in response to Australian women asking how they can help. And um, I thought, you know, women all over the world have um, pretty much the same challenges, but just different because we come from different countries. So, um, you know, the little blue shed logo is a, a, a dark lady and a white lady with their heads together and it's uniting women worldwide. And so really formed to come up with a membership program and that's called the sister little blue shed sisterhood club it's you can become a little sister for sixty dollars a year or you can become a big sister at 120 dollars a year and that 50 percent goes to menstruation products and girly items for the girls in the village we have a big problem with the young girls that their parents can't afford Um, their sanitary items so they go to a man to supply those and then that man obviously wants something in return and this is where a lot of teenage pregnancies go so by becoming a member 50% goes to catering for those menstrual items you'll get one of these uh, little blue shed unite necklaces which uh, are made from recycled calendar paper and you'll get a, um, a card, which is a Sisterhood Club card. And I'd like to develop that project further where we can talk cross-culturally about what are the challenges and um, just use it as a platform to really unite women and discuss issues and challenges that come up. Hey, Tanya, it's been so lovely chatting to you. Good luck with uh, the Little Blue Shed. I hope it Thank continues you. to prosper and grow.
Thank you. And that's Tanya Kursik. Now, you can check out the Little Blue Shed, and if you want to get involved, just head to littlebluesshed.info. That's littlebluesshed.info. Cal, that's a wrap for us. What? Yeah. What did you learn from the show today? Um, I learned how to pronounce your name. <laughs> Tick. <laughs> um, I, I have learned that empowering women makes a big difference to the community. I already knew that, but I'm saying it out loud again because I like it. Um, what else did I learn? I I really loved Nick going into politics, even though it's like being the Liberal seat for 73 years. I love that. Uh, just it's it's a little red hen kind of thing, isn't it? Like I'll do it myself. Yeah, that's right. The the optimism. That yeah. I, I also loved uh, speaking to Marik and and being reminded that we really need to say things and get them off our yes. chest before it's too late. So that was a really lovely reminder. Yeah, it was great. So, and I'm totally fired up for going along to see the next one as well. Like what a beautiful room to be in. Absolutely. Um, what a cracking show. Lovely to spend the morning with you. It's lovely to spend the morning with you. Joe Stanley is going to be back next Tuesday, of course, on Broad Radio. And don't forget you can listen back to this show or any of the uh, past episodes of Broad Radio on the podcast, Broad Radio on the go wherever you get your podcasts it's been lovely hanging out see you later broads planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.